I would say innovation is everywhere. Innovation is globally distributed. It's the opportunity and allowing people to have the opportunity. That is basically where there's VC, where there's money. This is Startup Island Taiwan, the channel all about cutting edge technology, influential global tech players, and Taiwan. Hello, and welcome back to Startup Island Taiwan. I'm your host, Jeremy Olivier. On today's show, we're looking at talent acquisition, and in particular, the recruitment of Taiwanese tech talent for remote teams. Taiwan, home to a powerhouse high-tech industry, also boasts a sizable pool of highly educated, highly skilled engineering talent. Yet the perennially low wages and long hours employees must often endure at local companies have pushed many of the country's best and brightest to seek out greener pastures overseas. Prior to the outbreak and global spread of COVID-19, that usually meant packing up and heading off to China, with some choosing other high-salary locales like Singapore and the U.S. However, the pandemic and rising geopolitical tensions have changed that dynamic in recent years. COVID's transformational effect on the nature of work has led to skyrocketing demand for remote employees in America and elsewhere. In an increasingly globalized world, remote teams need not all be in the same location. And in some cases, having a team spread across several jurisdictions globally may benefit many companies in terms of cost and time savings. Taiwanese engineering professionals wanting to find better paying jobs may now have options beyond physically leaving the country. With me to discuss this timely topic are two gentlemen with extensive experience with and a deep knowledge of recruiting and retaining top tech talent for remote teams, T1 Lin and Jin Chuang. T1 is the Los Angeles-based co-founder and CEO of Worka, startup providing integrated HR solutions for U.S. tech companies looking to efficiently hire remote engineering talent. The company closed a 1.5 million U.S. seed funding round late last year, and a hearty congratulations on that milestone, T1. T1 has also risen through the ranks of LA's innovative startup scene over the past decade. He kicked off his career there as a web developer and software engineer for several companies before co-founding Worka's predecessor, MVP Fastlane. T1 is also an angel investor and advisor for multiple firms in the LA area. Gene, on the other hand, is a tech executive with a 25-year history of working in LA's software and internet industries. Not only has he handled the recruitment of countless engineering professionals for multiple enterprises, but his resume also includes leading large teams of engineers. Beyond his current role as Vice President of Engineering for MarTech startup Emotive, Gene also runs CTO Slackers, an engineering leadership network of over 1,000 tech executives and technical founders all over the world. He also serves as an advisor for Worka. Ewan, Gene, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. So first, uh, I just want to start off by asking Gene about, you know, your path to leadership in LA's tech startup ecosystem. You know, what brought you into this world and how did you end up where you are now? Uh, so maybe a, a brief history. Uh, I was born in Taiwan um, and came here in 81 when uh, my dad getting his master's at UC Irvine. Brought the whole family over, came here in second grade. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Irvine now, but when I came here in 81 and I was going to school, I was the only Asian, the only Chinese in an entire school. So I kind of brought the Asian invasion in, into Irvine <laughs> and maybe Orange County. Uh, and uh, yeah, so growing up, uh, I grew up in Torrance, got into UCLA. So I went to UCLA, uh, Go Bruin, along with T. Wynn. So we've got a, a Co Bruin uh, interview here. You know, being having Asian parents, uh, you know, I was going there to be pre med, right? Because my dad's an engineer, but he's like, yeah, yeah, no, in order to make it in America, you got to be a doctor or a lawyer. 
So I, uh, you know, went through, uh, I was a biochem major at UCLA. I applied to med school. I did not get into med school. I met my wife at UCLA, which is actually one of the best things that happened in my four years there. She was a uh, English pre-med uh, and she actually got into med school. So I actually, uh, not the smartest one in the family. <laughs> I, if, if you maybe consider marrying a doctor, maybe I am the smarter one in the family, uh, marrying a doctor instead of being a doctor. Uh, so actually, uh, after UCLA, I did a year of HIV research and just did not like research. So uh, pivoted and just went into computer science. Uh, I took a year of programming at UCLA and C++. And, you know, growing up, you know, my dad bought me a Commodore 64 as my first computer. I had an IBM PC. Uh, and so I was just a total geek uh, growing up. But I never thought that, you know, you could actually make money out of the hobby that you really love. And this was 97. I was stuck in the labs and then I saw Netscape IPO. And that was just a holy crap moment. You know, it's like this all the World Wide Web and the Internet is going to be big. So I just pivoted, uh, went feet first into software, and uh, it's just been a crazy voyage for me. So I kind of call myself the Asian Forrest Gump of the internet. I just witnessed so many great uh, startups and worked with so many amazing people, everything from a couple of startups back in the late 90s uh, down in uh, Long Beach in Orange County to joining the rocket ship that is uh, GoTo.com that became Overture, got bought by Yahoo for over $2 billion dollars. You know, worked during the Yahoo era when uh, Jerry Yang, you know, a famous uh, Taiwanese American entrepreneur and startup guy, you know, uh, and, and this was when Yahoo was the internet, right? From 96 to all the way to, I would say it probably peaked around 06 or 07. I tell my kids, I have three kids, and I tell them Yahoo is what TikTok is right now. You know, imagine TikTok now. That was Yahoo. And the people I worked with is just amazing. You know, I worked with Stuart Butterfield through an acquisition. Uh, they acquired Flickr the same time they acquired Overture. Flickr was like the granddaddy of photo sharing. Stuart, of course, went on to found Slack. Um, one of my last uh, bosses at Yahoo was Brian Acton. He went on to found WhatsApp. So I just worked with just amazing, amazing people. And then since uh, I left Yahoo in 09, joined another big company in AT&T Interactive. And that was also another huge LA-based company. We had in our peak close to 1,000 people. And it's just this pattern of building network, working with great tech talent and building network. One of my philosophies is like companies will come and go, but networks, uh, the people you are with, uh, the people that you hang out with, the people that you cluster with, uh, they're there for life. And uh, since then, I've, uh, after AT&T Interactive, where I built the original YP mobile team, I got on to uh, iPhone development in 09 when the iPhone 3 and the App Store just launched. So or heady days of uh, iPhone development. Worked with uh, amazing companies like Chegg, a textbook rental company, Oversea.net, which is a, a, at its peak a $250 million revenue company, co-founded by a Taiwanese and a Hong Kong guy. Fred Su and uh, Lawrence Ang. And actually, Lawrence, who's originally from Hong Kong, he's actually living in Taiwan now and incubating companies. You know, he made a good chunk of money there. After overseas, uh, I worked at Singtree, a consulting company. And it was around that time when I realized, you know, this is something with the network and the people I made, I could build out a network. And here in LA, where it's very geographic dispersed, and you know, I've been CTO uh, at that time for a couple of companies now, there's always these CTO dinners, but people have to travel across town. And across town in LA is like an hour and a half drive, which now is like over two hours of the traffic. So it's just kind of based on that concept and based on remembering, hey, my old buddy Stuart Butterfield uh, you know, just launched uh, this little app called Slack. That's how I uh, got the uh, inception to create, a, at that time, a small network of 30 engineers 
just invited a bunch of my friends at Yahoo, uh, colleagues and bosses at Yahoo and uh, AT&T Interactive and oversee folks like Joseph Essas, one of my mentors who was at that time the uh, CTO of uh, OpenTable, Patty Hannon, who was the uh, CTO of uh, Edmonds, and then Headspace uh, afterwards. Just kind of a who's who of LA tech leadership. And uh, it just blew up from there. And uh, here we are today. Uh, we just crossed the 1,100 folks globally and uh, just amazing network of uh, technologists uh, helping each other out. All right. So from pre-med student, HIV researcher to a tech entrepreneur coming up through the, the internet boom era and meeting all of these, you know, big names in tech and internet and uh, now the leader of the CTO Slacker group. So you mentioned Slack here, and I was, you know, of course, assumed that CTO Slack is not somebody that's just slacking off. Um, so, you know, I do understand that Whiskey is involved when I was reading. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about this group. You know, what does it do and how does it contribute? Because we're talking about talent today, right? So how does it contribute to talent recruitment and retainment at tech startups? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, uh, when it started, it was 30 people and it was meant to be all virtual. That was the original conception, you know, being that there were other CTO dinners and stuff, uh, more physical meetings around. Uh, I wanted something that was all virtual. But one of the early uh, founding members, Hung Tran, who at that time was the CTO of Machinima. And I don't know if you guys uh, remember Machinima. This is the precursor to Twitch. Uh, Machinima was Twitch. And, and basically Twitch copied the idea and, and blew up. Hung was telling me, hey, Gene, um, you know, we've had a great Slack group. People chat about, you know, hiring, management, structure, strategy, technology, and tools. Uh, and every once in a while, we complain about our CEO bosses, you know, <laughs> um, uh, you know, like all technologists do. And I said, Hung, well, you know, one of the, the, the founding ideas of CTO Slackers at that time was LA CTO Slackers. So we, we actually, went through a evolution of franchising out to New York CTO Slackers and Denver CTO Slackers, and eventually during the pandemic combined back to become uh, CTO Slackers. I said, uh, LA CTO Slackers was meant to be all virtual. Uh, how can I get technologists to congregate and you know do one and a half hour commute across town to meet in person? Uh, what's the draw? And what do technologists like? And Hung immediately said whiskey. And at that time, which is six or seven years ago, whiskey was relatively cheap. It was just being discovered. Like, uh, And I'm a big Japanese whiskey fan and also Cavalon. Uh, uh, both Cavalon and Hibiki, those are like my two favorite. At that time, you could get a Cavalon, uh, a Solis Barrique, which is like, you know, worldwide award winning whiskey for like $70. And you get a Hippie Key 21 for $100. So we actually got a bunch of sponsors and had our first LACTO Slackers uh, meetup here in Pasadena. And uh, we had about 30 people show up. I got three sponsors uh, chipping in $2,000 each and just got a uh, great food and a great lineup that included a McCallum 25, uh, a Hippie Key 21, a Cavalon. Which now nowadays, like we're literally, we're, it would be tens of thousands of dollars. And at that time, we had all that great whiskey, and that was it. Since then, we've had maybe we met twice a year, you know, prior to the pandemic. And uh, during the pandemic, we would uh, have virtual whiskey. Uh, our last virtual whiskey uh, got a guy, uh, Irish guy, uh, Barry Chandler, who actually zoomed in from Ireland, Cork, Ireland. And we shipped out 170 whiskey kits all around the U.S. And we had a Zoom session with Barry giving a talk on Irish whiskey with a great story, of course, behind every one of them. Ended the night uh, singing uh, Irish tunes, <laughs> Danny Boy, and imagine 170 tech folks singing uh, on the top of their lungs on Zoom. Yeah, so um, maybe talk a little bit about what kind of 
contributions this group you know has made to you know talent acquisition and retention yeah so i think talent is you know uh, always a very important top of the mind even things that keep us up at night for technologists, uh, leaders, uh, CTOs, and uh, you know, head of engineers. And I think what is special about CTO Slackers, it's, it's a very collaborative uh, environment. And that's something I think is almost unique to LA. Actually, I don't see that as much, for example, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. And I think it's very unique to LA. We're not as competitive. We're more laid back. And there is no you know, intellectual property or competition amongst companies, because we know at the end of the day, we're all technologists. We all have common goals of, you know, building out a fantastic product, leading the company to either IPO or, you know, acquisition, but also uh, just as importantly, uh, hiring great talent. And we also know that it's not a competition for us to hire, you know, this very limited pool of talent. But in fact, we know that talents are unique and, different talent, have different skill sets they bring and also uh, how they fit to different companies. So it's not a you know competition for us where we're all trying to uh, hunt and find the same uh, small talent pool, but rather we collaborate and share. We share resumes. We put in job posting. We help each other. And, uh, you know, especially recently with the recession, for example, where a lot of us, myself included, had to riff or reduce and force uh, our engineers, we help our engineers find soft landing spots elsewhere where there is budget, where there is hiring. Uh, so I think that kind of collaboration among CTO Slackers is one of the key aspects of uh, CTO Slackers. Yeah, I did notice that the website that you have for your group does have a, a job board for both recruiters and for recruiting, you know, hiring companies. So it seems like a great resource. Yeah, this is just a self-serve. We put that uh, together. So we have like four or five organizers. Uh, Hong is one. Uh, Beth Kuchar, who is on the board of a uh, chairwoman of Innovate Pasadena, which I can go totally into. I'm on the board. That's, you know, we're trying to make Pasadena great again. We live here where we got Caltech, JPL, just amazing, amazing. Uh, and we just had a, you know, Nobel Prize uh, physics winner. Like we've had a physics winner uh, from Caltech or a Nobel Prize winner in, in the past three years in a row. So we just have like amazing, amazing talent here, including actually a fellow school mom who is colleagues with the first female chemistry Nobel Prize winner from Caltech three years ago, which I had the privilege of meeting. Uh, she's just amazing. So Beth is the one who actually designed our website. She put it using a CMS called Webflow, just kind of a self-serve uh, job site, if you will, for CTO slackers to post both resumes of themselves as well as their colleagues that are looking for a job as well as uh, job descriptions of uh, when they're looking or trying to find talent. Excellent. So for listeners out there that are looking for a job or looking for talent for their companies, uh, remember to keep an eye out for the CTO Slacker job board. So T1, I haven't forgotten about you. So maybe you can jump in now with some insight about, uh, you know, what are some of the key benefits and challenges of hiring for remote teams? Because that's really what we're focused on here today. What are some of the advantages of hiring remote workers in far off places like Asia? And what are some of the common barriers that hiring companies in the U.S. often face? I think I can cover the pros first. It might be sounds surprising to a lot of audiences, but you know, people often view time zone and the you know time zone difference as kind of a setback or some inconvenience. But it turned out there is a very viable strategy to turn this around and make it into your advantage. So I'll just take ourselves as example. We have our own designer in Japan, our you know web developer in Taiwan, and then we have our marketing team in the US. 
So typically what's happening is that in our own company, our workflow is that in the daytime here in the U.S., our marketing team will look into the analytics data and realize, okay, here are some traffic, you know, where are the places that will need improvement in our website? And then after the working hours of the U.S., they will send this feedback to Taiwan, our Asia team, and then they get it fixed essentially overnight. So if you get into a very nice, you know, this kind of close time zone collaboration, you actually get more done per 24 hours than just a single time zone team. Almost like a 24-hour team. Yeah, that's what we realized. And it is also true for a slightly larger team. Like typically you have QA engineers and you have developers and then QA engineers can just work and then you know, handle the task to the developer to fix and you, you see this kind of close time zone collaboration to be very effective. And obviously the challenges are, you know, when you get into a new country, you don't know where the, I call them A players, where are the best people, right? You don't know about culture. It can be definitely be frustrating if you just try to post a LinkedIn job up there and realize you're not getting the best people. So that's actually why I built WorkUp. We have a very you know, thorough and detailed strategy to really get the best people where they are, where they work for, what are the schools, background, like this. We deliver all these data very you know, cleanly to our customers on our platform. That's a good segue to my next question, which is specifically about work as the SaaS HR solution. You know, the company on its website stated that it's helped client companies achieve retention rates of up to 96%, which to me is just mind boggling. It seems abnormally high for the tech industry, especially for teams that are spread across the world. So how does this product work and how is it facilitating these matches? Like I said, we have a very thorough and, uh, you know, thoughtful uh, recruiting process which starts from the, the culture. We will always align for the culture feed. One challenge is typical you face is that you try to recruit just the best people, but they are now have this remote first mindset. So we definitely will filter out these people, only look for people that's really looking for a remote job. And then we verify they are, you know, graduated from a top school. They really work for like a global company before they join your company. You know, we do all this kind of thing. And what we deliver in 2021 is that our biggest client hired over 100 engineers with us and only four of them left in there for six months. And now all the rest stay for definitely longer than 18 months. And I think partly it's also because the culture of Taiwan, which is Taiwanese employees tend to be more on the loyal side of things like higher retention, really wants to get things done. And if you ever try to recruit for people in Taiwan, you will notice that even if they agree to join your company, they still want to finish whatever they're responsible for at the current company. Sometimes even take like a month or a month and a half before they want to join your company. So I think this is really good culture that Taiwanese employees really want to get things done and highly responsible. I'm glad you brought that up because my next question, I really wanted to you know, shift the focus over to Taiwan tech talent in particular. So back when I was working at the American Chamber of Commerce in Taiwan, we'd conduct this business climate survey at the end of each year. It's usually just to get a gauge on what you know, leaders of multinationals um, and other member companies in Taiwan were feeling in terms of the country's economy, you know, their own business products, uh, prospects, outstanding concerns, you know, other pertinent issues for them. When it came to talent, the consensus, you know, you mentioned this too, was that things like loyalty and teamwork and business acumen, executing assigned tasks, these were the strong suits of Taiwanese employees. But qualities like English ability and international mindset and even things like innovation were usually, you know, came in at the bottom of the list. 
So I just want to get, you know, kind of your respective experiences with recruiting specifically Taiwanese engineering talent. Have either of you run up against obstacles like, you know, like language barriers? Uh, I actually have not had the chance to work with uh, Taiwanese engineers uh, yet. We should definitely uh, make that happen in the near future. But I have experienced working with global talent uh, in India and actually currently in Ukraine, uh, in China and so forth. Uh, one thing I find is um, culture is definitely a big thing. And um, especially if you're building consumer apps here in the U.S., um, it's sometimes challenging to find uh, international engineers who could understand and not have to literally have, you know, requirements stated to them on a step-by-step basis, meaning having product, having to walk through with them everything. American engineers who, you know, understand the culture, understands uh, the use case, they could kind of fill in the gaps if there's a lack of requirements. But I think the other more important trait that sometimes I find lacking in other international workforce is ownership. And I think actually ownership is the most important. And uh, from what I hear from TWIN, as well as uh, my colleagues that have used East Asian and Southeast Asian uh, talent, ownership is not a problem in that people will work until they get things done, as opposed to clock in, clock out, right? I won't name countries, but uh, some of the uh, workforces I work with, they clock in at nine, they clock out at five. If you need to deliver, if we are going to launch this week, then we expect our engineers to pull all-nighters to get shit done. And I think that's something that I think a great actually, we just, you know, based on uh, culturally East Asian and Southeast Asian, we just have that ownership, you know, uh, work-like quality to deliver and get things done. Yeah. So cultural barriers and then sense of ownership and working to get those deliverables out there. T1, what about your experience? And, you know, I really want to focus here on Taiwanese tech talent in particular. Absolutely. So I think just to pick it back on Jin, already fantastic answer. I think the ownership is definitely the number one strength I see. Like people actually want to get things done and they will go, you know, just make a lot of extra pushes just to want to make things move nicer, better than expectation. I think naturally Asian people has this culture trait in us. But I want to also speak to the English and the language barrier. I do have uh, some learning myself that I realize most of the time, especially you're working for like top talent, so-called top talent, you know, typically graduate from the top four schools in Taiwan. Language is typically not really an issue, meaning they can definitely listen, they understand, and if you want them to speak, they can speak pretty well. But I feel like it's a culture thing that people will think if I ask too many questions, people will think maybe I don't understand enough. You know what I mean, right? So my advice to Taiwanese talent is really just try to overcommunicate. And so, for example, before you want to start doing a project, just try, you know, speak out loud and name a few milestones. Just don't be afraid to ask questions. I would double down on that. You know, Asians are tend to be demure, not rock the boat and, and basically say yes and we'll deliver. Uh, but asking question actually is a Western trait of you're actually engaged and you're interested and you're asking additional question to discover. And that's something that Taiwanese talent should never shy away from. Good points. Yeah. And this is something that I've heard, you know, over the years uh, as a business reporter is, is the thing about speaking up, right? Putting your voice out there and making yourself seen. Yeah. So uh, we kind of skipped over one of the questions earlier, which was um, maybe um, I can put this to both of you instead of just one. So both of you have 
quite a bit of experience as advisors for tech startups. Why don't you share some more of that aspect of your careers? Um, you know, what are some of the common pitfalls that startups face and, you know, how are you helping them avoid or at least minimize the risk of these challenges? Uh, sure. So actually, how T. Wynn and I met, even though we're literally neighbors, we're like a, a block away from each other, but we were actually introduced through a mutual friend, Tina Chang, who we both are investors and or advisors in her jewelry company. She owns a jewelry company called Capsule Jewelry, and they do 3D printing. She is based here in the South Bay, uh, um, Palos Verdes here in LA. But actually, she is, I think, within the next week or two, moving back to Taiwan. So this is a great case of a Taiwanese American who came here, who actually cut her running nightclubs here in Pasadena, and then uh, did a startup in China, and then uh, founded another company, and then founded Capsule, and then brought T1 and I together. So a great example of actually her being an entrepreneur, going back to Taiwan and bringing her entrepreneurial know-hows and her uh, you know innovation back to Taiwan. So I think she'll be a great addition back into the uh, Taiwan uh, startup ecosystem. Uh, advisor, like either advisor, mentor, or invest in over ten startups. Another one actually is another Taiwanese-based company called Just Kitchen. They're a ghost kitchen. So I haven't been back to Taiwan in sixteen years. Uh, I was supposed to go right before the pandemic. We booked our vacation and then the lockdown happened. Uh, and uh, fortunately, I never got the chance. And my wife is Vietnamese, but she's born here in the States. She's never been to Vietnam. So we were going to do a Taiwan-Vietnam swing. And so we're going to definitely do that next year. Uh, hopefully all the restrictions and the quarantines are lifted. And then, you know, we have three kids and they're all old enough. They can make the 13-hour flight. And we're going to do a nice Taiwan-Vietnam swing. Uh, hopefully, maybe go to the offices uh, of Worka uh, and visit the engineers. So Just Kitchen is another company where the COO, Kent Wu, is actually a, a fellow San Marino and parent uh, schoolmate that went back to Taiwan at the beginning of uh, the pandemic. And one of the things I think uh, good things, if you could say there's good things about the pandemic, is a lot of Taiwanese American, Taiwanese expats here went back to Taiwan and founded startups or worked for startups. And Kent's another one of them. So uh, help that out and uh, various other startups and uh, companies that I uh, advise or invest in. So it actually gives me a good sense of the ecosystem and it actually keeps me young. It's always good to work with young entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, I share with them my old wisdom and then they share with me their energy and new ideas. So it's a win-win for everybody. So uh, T1, yeah, maybe we can move over to you. Um, you know, your experience as an angel investor and advisor for multiple startups. Yeah. So I think for early stages, I kind of divide them into two groups. You're either technical or you're not. And typically for those technical startups, programmer, coder as one of the founder, most of the time they overbuild their product before real traction. So I think that's one thing I learned it myself. A lot of things you don't really need until your customer. You have first, you need to have customer or user. And then they really ask or kind of suggest there's really a need. That's one thing. And on the other hand, if you're like a non-technical team, a very common pitfall is to you know work with dev shops. I've seen many, many times for non-technical founders, they obviously don't have project or product management experience, and they will always define a scope that is too big for MVP. And that's actually why I started MVP Fastlane. It's because my philosophy is you just build just enough. Most of the time, it's almost like a demo to convince early stage investor to rewrite, cut you a check before you build any you know, real stuff. 
And most of the time, your initial product will likely be ditched after you get substantial funding and traction. So just in either case, don't overbuild and look for early tractions. I'm glad you brought up uh, MVP Fastlane. So how did this end up transitioning into Worka? Yeah, so as we were running MVP Fastlane, our mission was to help as many you know, startup founders to find their product market fit and get their initial investment. And during the time, you know, pandemic happened, we just saw there a tremendous amount of companies that just need international talent, right? Then both my co-founder Jack and I came from Taiwan. We know Taiwan has such a high talent density. There really needs a good platform to connect the both sides of the market. And then we went beyond there. It's, we, right now, we are not just in Taiwan. We also cover Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore, and pretty much all the major Southeast Asia, Asian countries. Wow. So any last parting words you can share uh, for U.S. companies recruiting, you know, either Taiwanese or East Asian remote workers, maybe just briefly, and we'll start with Gene. Sure. I, I maybe want to uh, circle back on one of the things I was mentioned as uh, maybe um, a minus for Taiwanese talent, uh, which is innovation. And I want to maybe call bull pucky on that. I've experienced fantastic innovation from Taiwanese engineers. Uh, when I was at Yahoo in 06, I believe it was either 06 or 07, we acquired a little company in Taiwan that eventually became Yahoo Answers. And Yahoo Answers is like the granddaddy of social Q&A in that now you have Reddit, Quora, uh, you know, you name it. Like that idea innovated from Taiwan back in 06 and 07. And I had the opportunity to go visit Yahoo Taiwan at the time. Unfortunately, I was working on this gigantic project here and I, I lost the opportunity. And I wish I did because I wanted to meet the innovators there. Came up with this fantastic idea of mirroring social with Q&A to, you know, crowdsource answers. So I would say innovation is everywhere. Innovation is globally distributed. It's the opportunity and allowing people to have the opportunity. That is basically where there's VC, where there's money. And uh, I would say don't fall for that trap and uh, give Taiwanese developers a chance, a talent chance, give work a chance, because you will never know what that next innovation or spark is coming from. Well said. Do you want I think Jing, you already covered 99% of the idea, like innovation and innovative people is everywhere. And I think that's the number one thing here. I think a lot of U.S., especially tech companies, some of them still have this, you know, we cannot go global. We need to collocate. The innovation only happens when five people sitting in a small room. That is just not true. And what my recommendation is that really be more open-minded. And if you want more like a detailed information, go on to Workout website. We have a very nice global wiki section where you can just check out the Taiwan wiki section and it will be a quick 10 minutes reading and you'll learn about everything you need before you, you know, go out and recruit your own A player and build a global team. Actually, let me add something real quick. One, one final uh, tie-in that, you know, we started off talking about uh, tech and whiskey and innovation. Cavalon is a Taiwan innovation that was actually trained by Jim McEwen, who is considered the Yoda of whiskey. You guys ever watch the show uh, Scotch on uh, Netflix? Jim is the Yoda of whiskey. He went to Taiwan and trained the Cavalon distillers how to make uh, Taiwanese whiskey. So tying it all back, we actually have a lot of interest in hosting a future CTO Slackers whiskey in Taiwan in the Cavalon distillery. So I want to I want to try to make that happen. So we're going to see whiskey technology, innovation, and great people all meet in Taiwan. So hopefully I could uh, get that to work out. 
Yeah, we look forward to that. I don't know if any listeners here, either Gene or T1, have actually been to the Cavalon Distillery, but it, it is an interesting place to say the least, right next to the, the Mr. Brown Coffee Factory. And uh, it's a great place to go visit out in Ilan in uh, eastern Taiwan. And uh, you can get a free tour there and then a tasting at the end. Um, we are running up the end of our time here on the show, and I see that Gene has also finished his martini and his olives. So um, I just want to thank both you and T1 again for coming onto the show today to share your insights. I mean, it's been a really fascinating discussion, really eye-opening for me too on um, LA's startup scene, about talent recruitment, about advising for tech startups. And to listeners, thank you for tuning in. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode of Startup Island Taiwan. <music>